Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. Hello, everyone, and welcome in to Debate Night, Episode 2 with Brody Smith. I'm Hunter Thomas. Uh, tonight's show is going to look a little bit different. So the main premise of Debate Night is we get onto Twitter spaces or we have people call in and we debate the viewers. But tomorrow I'm headed out of town to Charlotte. Uh, we're going to be filming some Bogey Bros battle uh, down in Charlotte. And so I'm not going to have time to edit the whole intricacy of going back and forth with people on Twitter and all of that. So instead... Um, I believe we have a few topics on our docket tonight that Brody and I disagree on, so it's still going to be a debate show, it's just instead of between being between Brody and the audience, it's going to be between Brody and myself. So it should definitely be an interesting show. Um, I think we're going to start off, though, going back a little bit to last week at Ledgestone. Um, uh, mm. Eureka Lake, Eureka Temp seemed to be fine, there seemed to be no real issues and stuff like that, except for obviously the weather. Um, that played a big part in it, but Northwoods Black caused all kinds of issues, um, mainly due to the backups that we were seeing. And I've seen a lot of people talking about the possibility or possibly necessity for cuts at some of these events, uh, both in relation to the backups and just in general. Um, so first off, I want to just ask, what do you think, like, would cuts have solved any of the backup issues at Ledgestone? I think that it definitely would have not hurt. Um, there's no way the backups would have been worse if there was a cut. Now, I think backups happen because of several th reasons. Um, one can be the actual design of the court of the, the hole. Um, another one can be the the amount of players on the course. Another one can be the skill level of the players on the course. All those things, I think, matter. Uh, but for sure, there's no way the backups would have been worse if there was a cut. Um, but I, I I think backups are one... I, I feel like it's such a big issue. And there's it doesn't seem like anyone's really caring about it. Like I feel like yeah, it, it should like be like number one thing of like we need it like right next to like bathrooms on the course. The next thing should be like we need or it should go it should go inner like be able to see every single hole. And I'm sorry about the autofocus guys. We're trying to figure this out right here. So if it's <laughs> if it's doing some weird stuff, I talk with my hands, which I think causes some problems. Maybe if I back up a little bit, it might be better. But if if you're looking at like most important things to run a good disc golf event, it's got to be we need to be able to show every single hole, like have have reception every single hole. We need to make sure there's bathrooms like consistently throughout the course. And then the third thing should be uh, we we shouldn't be having guys standing on a tee pad for half an hour. Like I feel or like even that's, longer. I feel like that's fair. Yeah, I think half an hour is kind of generous for, for some of what we've seen at, at Northwoods. Uh, I think when we talked about this on Grip Locked a little bit, um, and one of the big things that I brought up was I just think there's too many players out there. Uh, what was the field I, size? At, I, I believe it was 160. <sighs> around there. Wow. Wow. Yeah. To where you're just, you have to crank through tee times, and that caused the lead group, even on some of the longest days of the year, you know, and beginning of August, to still be finishing in the dark. Which I just think that, I think that alone cut the field size down to 100, 
and that's a that's a big solving thing. The other thing we talked about a little bit that Trevor wasn't a fan of, I kind of was. I want to hear your opinion on is splitting into two pools because um, that well, the, you know you can go eighty I, and eighty, but I, you're talking about keep two pools, one on so one's playing Northwood and one's playing Eureka. Mm-hmm. And then after round two, hate it. So you have hate that. Hate flip that. them and then cut it. I hate that. I hate that. why because you're already dealing with. Uh, different conditions potentially throughout the day that if it's a really windy day and you're having to play Eureka and then the next day it's not nearly as windy, um, it's going to be a massive advantage for the other. I I think you got to do less things that make it um, beneficial or or could make it beneficial for a certain tee time. So what uh, golf does to try to combat this is they try to get as many people on the course as, as, as possible, like get people out there and going quickly as possible. And this is something that I think disc golf definitely should, uh, look at doing themselves is having two, uh, two, um, tea times. So you literally, me and you literally could have the same exact tea time. I'm just going off on hole one and you're going off on hole 10. So right now, if the first tee time is at seven o'clock, the course mm-hmm. isn't actually full until probably like eleven fifteen. When that seven o'clock tee time gets all the way to hole eighteen, now the course is full. Where if you have people going off hole one and going off a hole ten, the course is full in like an hour and a half. You don't have to. You don't have to wait for whole. You don't have to wait for the first group to get all the way to hole 18 within an hour and a half, you now have the front nine tee, uh, tee times. They're all full on the front nine and the back nine tee times. They're all full on the back nine. And the other thing that this is really good for is actually for backups because what you end up doing is you end up having a morning tee time session and an afternoon tee time session and you have a big break in the middle. So there's oh. no tee times for three or four hours in the middle while you get the morning session done, right? Because you can't keep throwing people on. Basically, uh, you obviously have to have a break in the middle because you know I can't be going from hole nine or from hole 18 to hole one and all of a sudden like a tea time's going off, another tea time's going off. That, that doesn't make any sense. So you have a break in the middle. So what ends up happening is if there is any sort of crazy backups that get that happen right for whatever reason some backup happens and so now like people are waiting 10-15 minutes on hole 16 that levels itself out that because there is a huge break in tee times that in the afternoon you're not just compounding on backups so if you know that one par five i'm sure had a lot of backups at northwood black it was hard to tell because we didn't see anything on the front nine. Mm-hmm. But if there is some sort of backup situation, uh, at least it's only going to be 10 minutes twice versus you know 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 14 minutes, 20 minutes. And, yeah. and then this keeps getting worse and worse. Um, so, so, do they, so how does it work like day to day? Do they flip-flop? So if you teed off at yeah. 7 a.m. on hold 10 – what do you tee off on day two? So you, it's just you're. You, they have two groups. So you're either in the morning tee time or the afternoon tee time. So if you're in the morning block 
on Thursday, then you're going to be in the afternoon block on Friday. So does this only work ver- on one course? Vice versa. Well, yeah. What I, I hate, I hate having two courses and you're having people play a different course a day. Anyways, that should never happen. I, I actually am not even a big fan of the two course system. I think the only reason, the only reason two courses work, or the only, the only, the only reason I've heard that's good of like, hey, this is why we have two courses is like in the world situation where you wanted to make sure that you had wooded golf and like, you know, Open big golf. bomber golf. Yeah. Um, instead of having like two, uh, having a course that just has like, you know, seven really good wooded disc golf courses or holes and then, you know, 10 or whatever open holes. Um, that's the only thing I've ever heard of why it's good. And I think that slowly goes away once people uh, start, you know, making courses specifically for that. Yeah, I think that's mainly been the logic I've always heard is that I mean, way the real reason why they the best players. Yeah, and the real reason, though, let's be honest, the real reason why uh, these tournaments have multiple courses is the money. That's, I mean, that's... That's the real reason is to get as many play. Like that's the idea. Like Ledgestone, DDO, a lot of these tournaments, like the number one thing that they're probably thinking about is how do we get as many people playing in this tournament? Well, not on the open side, not as much. Not on the open side. No, but uh, in a tournament, in a tournament idea. Well, on the amateur side though, a lot of, a lot of AM players, that's a draw to a tournament is, oh, I get to play this course, this course, and this course across three days. Like, I think as an advanced player, a lot of people want to play three different courses. I agree with you. One of the big draws is now I can have a 72-person advanced, 72-person intermediate, 72-person rec field because they're all on different courses. But I don't think that's necessarily the draw for the Open because there's so many rules and restrictions with the PDGA where, and as it should be, 100% of what comes in from players has to go back out to where they shouldn't be... Tournament shouldn't be pocketing anything off the pro side of the event other than ticket sales and being able to monetize your event that way to the fans. Yeah, and I think I think what you just talked about too also is the difference in the cut. Is if if it was a four day tournament, if it was an amateur event and it was four days and you told them that there was gonna be a cut, I think a lot of people would not like that. Right? Yeah. They wanna they wanna play all all the rounds. On the professional side I could not tell you how frustrating it was at D-Glow to have to play that final day. Mm-hmm. Because it's like I, I, I was out. Already out I, had, I played two terrible rounds. And in my mind, it's like, uh, send me home. Yeah. Like, I'm trash. Like, I'm trash. <laughs> send me home. Yeah. And, you know, it just felt like you were like going out there for a death sentence. And it was terrible. So I think that is the difference – or that should be there. I'm sure there's probably still people playing uh, on the professional side that would just like to play four rounds at this course or three rounds at this course. Um, but I, I think you're starting to get more and more players that are like, "This is my. This wasn't my week. Get get me out of here. Let me let me go to the yeah. next place. You know, let let me get out of here." So now. How do cuts work if there's less than four rounds? Like, does it even work if there's less than four rounds? I think I think tournament? it still could. I think it still could work if there was three rounds. I think so. You cut I after round two still. 
I think you still cut after round two and then you just have a final day. Um, and uh, four rounds, you do the same thing, cut after round two. Now, obviously, it's it's nice to have two di- two more rounds to be able to kind of jockey and move around. Um, but, you know, if you're trying to, if you're really trying to make like a premier event, you know, you, you need to cut the fat. And yeah. if you're keeping the fat around, I still, I think that kind of, devalues the event a little bit because um i i want to be able to show you know the the weekends uh, the weekend rounds the you know the saturday and the sundays those are going to be the days that most of the crowd shows up and Mm -hmm. you would like them to be able to post up on a hole and everyone coming through is like legit is like playing good and you know i mean why is there someone on in the field that's 45 over par, you know, 70 shots out of the lead still in the event? What the heck is that person doing? You know, I felt terrible at D-Glow and I was, I was like, I don't know what I was, but you know, I was a couple, couple, was I one, was I over par at that tournament? Oh, that's sad. But, uh, <laughs> like, you know, I, I was beating people by 20. And I still felt like I shouldn't be playing. So yeah. I, I think that's the key. Is like if you have an off week, you have an off week. It's okay, but just send them home, send them packing. And I think now, you also thing- get way less DNFs too. I mean, heck, you look at any mm-hmm. tournament. There's like seven guys DNFing at every tournament. Like, what's going on? Yeah, they would have already been. They've already been gone. Yeah, disc golf is not a. Uh, it's not the most strenuous thing on your body. So these people are DNFing simply because they're like, I, I shot 15 over in the first round. I'm out of here. Yeah. There is a, um, <laughs> I, I'm not going to say the name of this person. No one would know him, but if he happened to watch, I'd feel bad telling the story. Oh. But there was oh. a guy who, uh, in college, he was playing on the same team that I played for. And we went to a tournament that wasn't a collegiate tournament, but like all the guys on the team went. And so we went to this tournament and, Round two, he's playing just awful. And hole, or no, he was playing, yeah, he was playing okay to start. And I think like hole two or three, he got stung by a bee early in the round. <laughs> he continues to play and hole 18 with like two two throws left. Like his round's over. He's playing pretty bad the rest of it. He DNFs because the bee sting's hurting him. And so we just, the rest of the year, just gave him so much so much crap over that. Because like, dude, if the bee sting was hurting you, Why'd you play 15 holes of golf? Like you had your upshot and a tap out putt left. Like you'd made it. That wasn't the beasting. But he was like, nah, dude. Like it was the beasting. I was like, you just didn't want to get 888. Like you just wanted to have some type of reason so it didn't touch your rating that you were able to drop out. But yeah, I think that's yeah. that's sometimes there might be one or two players that get hurt, tweaking knee, tweaking elbow. But I think a lot of times it it gets to where you're like, why am I out it's here that. on this final day? You know, yeah. like yeah, maybe my body's a little sore or something to where I can. Like, like, uh, part of my take always does injured or hurt. Like, is this guy hurt or is he actually injured? And it's like, I'm, yeah. I'm hurting a little bit. I can, I can have a valid reason to drop out and my friends won't make fun of me. Cause you know, I tweaked my, I tweaked my ankle a little bit. That's why I'm 15 yeah. over through 14 holes. I'm a, I'm a DNF right now. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's, I, I think that comes with the professionalism too. You know, taking a DNF, it's, it's not a good thing. Um, yeah, and and that's Which, why if you were on tour, it's a different thing. Like if you're a touring professional, 
most of these guys don't DNF unless it's something serious. But when you're a weekend exactly. warrior and you're like, I can like if I'm going to a tournament, I'm like, heck, I can DNF, sleep in, and then watch the lead card tee off. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's what yeah, that's no. what I'm thinking. No, I've never done a... that, but that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> no, I've thought big... that many a times. I've never done it. There's a, there's a, there's definitely a big big difference between the two, um, because yeah, like you said, if you're just some random person, the only people that are going to say anything uh, are are the people that you know know you personally, like yeah. friends and family that are following you. But you know, I DNF'd at DDO because of that freaking Lyme disease uh, drug I was taking, which basically like melts you if you're in the sun. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had, I had hundreds of mentions and stuff about like, what's going on, what's happening. Um, yeah. so, you know, I think it's different for, for different people that, you know, some people are getting, you know, people are paying attention to where they are on the leaderboards and some people it's really just like the, the close friends. So I, I think you see something like that kind of go away too, when you, you just get cut. If you had a bad round or two, you know, you just get app, you just get done, um, and I mean, there was, if you looked at Ledgestone, there was some really big name people that did not have good weeks. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think you would also see more of that too when courses start becoming more and more difficult, you know? So difficulty wise, did you like Northwoods Black or did you think that that pushed it too far? Um, you know, it's tough because... I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't watch any of the front nine, obviously, because they didn't have mm-hmm. any of it, right? And I'm not going to go back and watch post produce. I'm just not going to do that, uh, mainly because I'm not playing the course. The only time I ever watch post produce co- uh, coverage is if I'm trying to get an idea of what the course looks like before I go out and practice it for a tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, like from a wood, from like wooded disc golf, it's very, very difficult to get a good gauge on fairness, difficulty, any of those things uh, without actually playing it yourself. So, you know, I know like, for example, like hole 18 is just the reverse hole 10, I believe. Um, Okay. So, so I can kind of like put that in my head and kind of feel like, okay, that's a really tight fairway. That's a pretty tough angle for your second shot to get out. I can put kind of some of that stuff in my head. Uh, but for some of the holes, it, it was, it was difficult for me to really grasp how difficult, how, how difficult it was. Um, but I, I think for wooded disc golf, one of the things that really shines is your scrambling ability and your decision-making because mm-hmm. I don't think there was a hole out there that you should have gotten an eight, nine or 10 on. Yeah. I think the only reason you're getting an eight, nine and 10 is because you don't have the ability to mentally say, okay, I'm out of position. Let me throw a shot to put me back into position to when then I can try to advance and, and get a bogey or double. You're, you're going for heroic shots, you know, out of the woods or doing whatever and you're just continually putting yourself in a worse and worse position. So I think that's one thing that you saw, uh, which is what I think some courses are missing of where it's like, it's almost impossible to get like a seven on a hole. Yeah. You know, it's like, you really have to do something really bad to get a seven, 
But out here, it's like if you just if you throw one bad shot and then you mentally don't make the right decision, uh, you, you can put yourself in a in a big number. So yeah. I personally liked it. I I I thought I thought it was. Uh, I know. I think it's set. I, I think it's set up to where if you're playing well, you're going to get a big uh, separator against the people that weren't playing well. Yeah, I think we saw it everywhere. Like from players that I would consider to be top. 10 top 15 players we saw round two i believe it was calvin at seven under par and Ulibarri at 12 over and paul Macbeth at four over and then you had a number of players at five four under to where most courses nowadays you're not seeing that scoring separation so no. i i personally really liked it because i think it was also true like if you look at hole 15 i think it was as a par four you had a player like drew gibson he was just throwing a mid and just playing smart got in the middle laid up had his three, and then I think it was part of this was the backups. It really got to Paul to where he took a seven on that hole. And, like, what what courses are you seeing a four-stroke separator yeah. that's realistic on the lead card? Not just from, yeah. like, oh, yeah, like, the top players, they're all three in it. Then you see some fours and then some sevens down low. Like, the lead card, you saw everything from a three to a seven. Um, so that's kind of where I liked it. I think the biggest issue was just the the backups, which, which back to the – the cuts, one part of um, the cut with a four-round event or even a four-round event in general is day three. It's widely been called in disc golf and in golf moving day. But from what I understand, uh, I think we have a different – I think like me being just a strictly disc golf fan and you know learning golf lingo and stuff in this world, I don't actually understand what moving day is apparently. So what is, what is-, is moving day supposed to be? So this is this is one of those uh, terms that you know disc golf loves to just take from golf, but then you know this is where I, I laugh sometimes when I like hear people tweet stuff and say stuff of like we don't need to be like golf, we don't need to be like golf, and like these are the people that are like oh my god, moving day baby, let's go, and it's yeah. like. You know, they they decide like certain things are fine, but certain things aren't, and and then they're not even using them right. Like <laughs> disc golf, disc golf doesn't have a moving day. Okay, Pro Tour, Disc Golf Network, Joe Mez, Central Coast, whoever keeps saying moving day, just stop. We don't have a moving day. The reason why there is a thing called moving day in golf is because golf can actually set up the course differently. Okay, they play the same course all four rounds, but they can adjust the tee pads, which basically, uh, well, the, the tees. And, mm-hmm. and basically what that does is it, they can either shorten holes or they can lengthen holes. And they can also adjust the pin locations. Now, imagine in disc golf, imagine having a hole be... One day, uh, I'll give you two scenarios, okay? So hole 17 at USDGC is just, it's a hole that most people know. So imagine hole 17 at USDGC. And this is actually a good hole because they actually do change the pin on this hole. Mm -hmm. But imagine them changing the length, okay? So where hole uh, on, on Thursday and Friday... It's the typical 270 feet or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But on whole Saturday, it's 390 feet. Okay? Interesting, yeah. That makes that whole way different. Way different. Okay? 
And then the the pin, the basket change there is exactly what I'm talking about. When that basket is set in, I think they have it only set in the front left on Saturday and Sunday. I, I could be wrong. And I'm sure they probably... It changes, it changes year to year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it's not super consistent. But when that basket is in the back right, the scores on that hole are way better, right? There's way more birdies mm-hmm. and there's way less big numbers. Now, imagine if they actually did that on like 70% of the holes where they move the pit, the basket to a location that's... Or like look at like Memorial. Memorial's another good course that... Uh, Fountain Hills. On Saturday, if they were able to pick up a lot of those baskets that were like right next to the water and move mm-hmm. them 60 or 70 feet away from the water to okay. where they're way, they're way more attackable and there's way less chance. Um, now, this works a lot more in golf than it does in disc golf because all you're doing when you're moving a pin in golf from an easy location to a hard location is you're basically just decreasing the amount of birdies. Uh, but the, the bogeys and double bogeys and stuff like that still exist. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really make that much sense in disc golf. Um, because you really would just be eliminating the amount, like the score separated, like when you move baskets to easier locations, the score separation would get worse, not better. Yeah, not better. Right? Uh, but in golf, when you're moving it to easier locations, what you're doing is now you're making it to where someone can go out and shoot eight under. And the leader could just be having a bad putting day and shoot like one under. And now there's mm. a, that's a seven, seven shots versus if you put the pin locations in difficult spots – it's really hard for that guy to go and shoot eight under. Now, now maybe he only shoots four under, and the guy still that's having a bad putting day shoots one under. So now it's only three spots. So that's really the whole notion of like moving day in golf is they set it up. You know, they'll set up a hole that might be playing, let's say, 410 yards as a par four. Maybe they move it all the way to the front tee pad, uh, or sorry, tee box, the front tee box, and now that hole is 340. And now people could drive that par four and get a two, an eagle, where before they wouldn't. Same thing with par fives. They can do the same thing. You know, they can adjust the distance on a par five to where now an eagle is is more likely in the play than before. You know, an eagle's almost you know no chance because it's too long. So moving day in golf is is in a situation where they actually go in and adjust the pin locations, adjust the T boxes to where it sets it up to where it gives the ability of someone going out there and shooting a good round. I gotcha. So that makes a lot of sense. I think it's pretty obvious that disc golf kind of just must've just taken the term, but like, but I think in disc golf, I think it still kind of makes sense, but it's less technical and specific. Like moving day isn't a specific day as far as the course is set. Every day is a moving day. Every day, technically, day. it's just more that day three is the day. <laughs> the day three is the day that I think it's more of a mindset of like day three is the day you attack. I don't think so. That's, I don't, that's how I, it's been. That's how it's being used. Sure, like day three but, is the day to get in position for you to be ready if, to win on day four. But but just think about how stupid that idea is. You're playing the same course, so if you're really like, but you might be making you know, different decisions. 
No, no. Like if you're playing Peaks View, Hunter, okay, <laughs> and, and you're playing Peaks View, and you're in, and this is a pitch and putt course, guys. This is a pitch and putt course. Yeah. Uh, and you have a three day, uh, four day tournament there. You're gonna tell me your strategy of how you're playing that course it changes from Saturday, no, like Saturday to Thursday. Not Peaks View, but New London, it might, or Independence Park, it might. How? How? Because there might be a hole at Independence where I know if I play safe, I'm gonna par it every time. But now after two rounds, I'm in 10th place. Would, but I would say your strategy would change more on Friday where it's a cut line. There's actually a cut line of where now, you're, now you might be playing safe because well, it you're, depends you're on where barely you're at. inside. Yeah, because you're, you're barely inside the cut. Yeah. Um, I, I just think the notion of thinking that like multiple players are – disc golf has so many little – so many few holes – where people actually have to make decisions like that. And disc golf is so easy in the sense that um, the, the margin of error, like your skill level, uh, is really the big limiting factor that the margin of error is so small that there's no way that you're like playing a hole differently. Now, in golf, I can totally see it because it's like, all right, I'm not going to play this hole for a birdie because if I play it for birdie, I can take a double, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like I'm, I'm, I'm just going to try to play for a par. In disc golf, there's, there's very, very few holes that I'm like – I have that in my head of like, oh, if I try to birdie this hole, I could get a, I could get a six. Yeah. So I'm just going to play it for par. No. Like uh, the, these guys, you talk to any of these guys – uh, most of the courses we're playing are birdie or die courses. Like you have to try to birdie everything. If you're trying to win, you have to try to birdie your every, everything. Because if you're playing the course and you're trying to birdie every hole and I'm playing the course and I'm only trying to birdie 14 holes, over the course of four rounds, you have 16 more chances at birdie than I do. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose, maybe not to you because you have a bad week, but I'm going to lose to someone that's playing for a birdie on every hole. So I think that's the idea of like at the top level, these guys aren't changing their strategy uh, on how they're playing holes because the holes aren't set up in a way for them to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, yeah. Like what hole at Eureka would you change your strategy? The only one I can think of is maybe the baseball hole, hole five. That's the only hole. Well, I could see uh, hole 16. Maybe you play an air shot because it's your safe shot, and then the final round or second to final round, you go roller instead. That par four right before but the even shot a, across the but even a But even a roller, I mean, a roller, I think, is the better play there. It is, but some people go air shot. Because they I, have a bad roller. Well, yeah, but they might know the roller's the better <laughs> shot, and so then the second to last round, they're like, oh, let me try laying down this roller to maybe give myself a oh, shot at the eagle. I don't think so. I think you're. I think you're, I've, I've played practice rounds and heard people talk think, about that. I think hey, I think hole eighteen is more like that. I think eighteen's another good example. I think eighteen's more like that because if you have a good roller, you're throwing a roller every single time on sixteen because you it gives you the chance of a two. Yeah, well, that's a be, it's an air shot's never. Yeah, an air shot's, but you can't throw back. But if I'm saying like. If it, it, I had I went roller last year at Ledgestone on that hole every single day. My mm-hmm. roller's way better now than it was last year, and I went roller every single time. So like 
I can only imagine, like, you have to have no confidence in your roller to not go roller on that hole. That's or you have reason. that much confidence in your bat and your air shot. If you if you knew well, your air shots guaranteed you shot, three every time. But the roller should guarantee you three almost every time. It should, but it brings in those right hedges. If you don't stand it up all the way, it brings in the left OB. It brings in more than if you're comfortable you, with it to where on day three or four, depending I think on where you're at, you can go for I it. I think 18 is a better example, though. because yeah, I think, it, They're both a similar mindset. Of their, there's yeah. two different shots. One's a more aggressive play to where I think I those think, types of holes, what's meant by moving day is the player mindset is like, okay, now it's time I need to attack because I'm in – 20th place but 16 is such an easy not. birdie that's the thing though 16 such an easy birdie where yeah 18 18 is actually a hard birdie whether you throw roller or not mm-hmm. so i could see on 18 you're going air shot air shot air shot and then on you know the final day you're like hey if i birdie this hole i jump up five spots so you're gonna go roller to give yourself the potential of actually getting a birdie uh, or a better chance so i i can see that or yeah. Heck, maybe even throw the big sky Annie yeah. right out over the water. Um, yeah, but I yeah. Think, I mean, yeah. I think the biggest difference is there's no moving day in disc golf. Yeah, because right no now moving day. moving day is being used in disc golf to refer to a player's mindset, whereas moving day in golf is being used to used in relation to how they're setting up the course, regardless of a player's mindset. Correct. The course the course changes to the to the point of where it makes players be more aggressive. Yeah. The, the Where, course is adjusting the player's mindset versus correct. the course didn't change and you're saying moving day because players are trying to get up. to a different spot. I, I'm waking up on Saturday. I've had my banana and I'm like, I'm freaking running everything inside of 100 <laughs> feet. That's not, that's not a thing. That's yeah. not, you don't see that. So Now, um, as, when you're on tour though, if you walk up to a course and it has two pin placements, like let's say, let's just use Eureka because they were just there. If you see Eureka and you see two different pin placements, uh, is that something that you see as like a negative in the course yeah. on, the, on the tour? I, I think you can't do th- – I, I don't think you can do too much because, like, again, you got to look at golf. When, when you're setting up for uh, – when you're going through for, you know, your practice rounds in golf, uh, there is – there's so much like the putting and stuff like that. Like you're really f- trying to figure out, okay, if I miss here, uh, that's going to put me in a lot of problems here. And if I miss this, 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 uh, you're, you're really working on a lot more around the greens, mm-hmm. I would say, um, and trying to figure out where to miss, uh, way to, where to play safe. Uh, the problem with like changing the, this blurriness, <laughs> come on. Going on, uh, the problem with disc golf is like, you know, it, it's it could be a completely different shot. Yeah, and some of these courses, it really is a huge at. You know what? Actually, now I think about it, I might be for it because uh, because right now the way it's set up is like some some of these courses massive advantage, massive advantage if you've played them before. Mm-hmm. Or it's like your home course. Yeah. And I think, you know, at least for me, I have seen uh, some of my better results coming from courses that are like newer to tour mm. because everyone's like on the same playing field. So like everyone's try- like has only gotten a couple throws 
where you know you're you're walking up to some of your local hole and you're like I've thrown this shot a hundred times. It's this disc. I throw it on this angle and I throw it this hard. Yeah. Um, that's that's a massive advantage. So maybe I would be for it. Maybe I would be for changing up tee pads more and baskets more to where it, it really makes it to where you're not able to just grind out, you know, 18 practice rounds and like have every single hole dialed in. It makes it more on the feel side and and uh, a little bit there versus just giving it the advantage to the to the person that's their home course. Well, is the issue know. is the issue there lack of preparation time because like sometimes you're rolling into a course on Monday and the tournament's starting on Wednesday or Thursday, and right now you have to learn one pen location, possibly two courses if it's like a ledgestone. But then in this yeah. scenario, you know, if it is only one course, like you had advocated for, now you're basically having to learn two courses again even though it is only one place. Because like you're saying in disc golf, <laughs> it might change where you want your drive to land, your approach shot to land, and what side of the green oh. you want to be putting on to where you're fully learning two new courses now. It, it, I, I, I'm, taking, I'm taking my bet. I'm going back. <laughs> I, I think it's actually a terrible idea because now I'm thinking about the practice rounds. Yeah. And, bro, some of these practice rounds take so long because you have people throwing 15 shots uh, you know, a hole – and now that you're now you have two baskets on multiple holes, now you're gonna have them throwing ten shots at this basket, ten shots at this. Oh my gosh! I go back. No, having multiple baskets that would be a nightmare, because unless you have people out there like regulating practice rounds and being like, bro, you you've been throwing your tee shot, you know, you've been on this tee tee box for like ten ten minutes throwing tee shots. Come on, is is part um, of that. Is it part of that though, where there should be like a tour card enforced or something to where, like, is it? Are we talking about top twenty players that are throwing that many shots? Or are you talking about like if I went out to Idlewild, and like I have no business being there, like of course <laughs> I'm be throwing my entire bag because I'm trying to figure out how to par this this hole. You know what I mean? Like what what level player are you talking about throwing that many shots? Uh, well, I think it's very like uh, dependent. You know, I've played practice rounds with all sorts of different people and. There are some people that no matter if it's the day before the tournament or the first round, they're throwing multiple shots. And I've played with some people where they'll only throw multiple shots uh, on the first, you know, their first practice round. And then they're pretty much just like they know what to do the second, third practice round. And so they're just throwing that disc that they're going to throw on that hole. And uh, the only time they would ever throw another shot is if they happen to throw a bad shot or something and they want to get that feeling out or, you know, maybe they're still tweaking something or trying something. Um, so I think it, it, I don't think it's necessarily even skill based. I've seen some of the top guys, you know, play crazy long practice rounds the day before the tournament. So, Mm -hmm. um, I think, I think it'd be more, but, but I'm with you. I think eventually there needs to be a certain player making it on tour and then there also needs to be like kind of actual like practice round times because mm-hmm. uh, you're also not even counting we're not even talking about fpo right mm-hmm. like there's a hundred and let's say there's 150 mpo players and then there's 40 fpo players and that you almost have 200 people that could be showing up for a practice round at who knows what time so yeah. i i think down the road those things definitely need to be a little bit more organized 
um, just so that way you're not having five-hour practice rounds. Yeah, well, that's that's one thing that I think USDGC, kind of going back to that event a little bit, has done very well is they, they have had two pens in for... I think the Disc Golf World Tour, when that was a thing back in like 2016, kind of implemented that to where they, they did rotate different pens. Um, but one thing that I think it works at that event is twofold. A, the qualification process is pretty rigorous. So you're, you're getting the best of the best from that year at that event. Mm-hmm. And B, there's typically not another serious event within a week to two week span to where, or even if there is, USDGC means so much that players are getting there so early that they have some players will spend two weeks in Rock Hill learning USDGC to where it gives us that benefit of a moving day type situation or even just seeing slight variations in the course to where oh the course is going to be playing a lot tougher today while missing out on the the possible negatives that that we just talked about. Um, now one thing that USDGC has introduced over the past few years as well, but is ramping up this year, is their pay per view model. So in the past, I think they started doing this a few years ago. They originally started it with just the lead card, and they've kind of slowly phased it into where last year it was like 20 bucks, and it was through Fulcrum Media. This year, it's $25 is the minimum you have to pay for four rounds through the Disc Golf Network, and $100 is their top tier, but that gets you like a disc and stuff like that. Um, That's so weird. What? Yeah, I was about to say, what do you, like, so what do you think about this where a, a tournament is just kind of like, doing their a major at that is kind of doing their own thing and being like hey you want to watch the most prestigious event in disc golf 25 yeah. bucks minimum so i i i i don't think i have a problem with like the pay-per-view uh model um you look at es uh you look at like ufc everyone knows i'm a huge ufc fan i haven't missed a single pay-per-view this year um heck i've even watched some of these stupid social media fights well here um, before before you get too much into the ufc comparison i do have one thing about it though ufc you're paying for a fight you haven't seen before or a fight you haven't seen in a while you know what i mean it's two dip two fighters that you haven't seen on a card of a different fighters you haven't seen in this scenario we've seen these same players going to head to head the only variant Mm. that changed is is the the course. course it's not like we're like oh my word ricky's playing against paul today that never happens like it is see, in UFC. I, yeah. Do I think it should be a pay-per-view event? No, I don't think it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think the biggest, the weirdest thing is the tier system. That would be, that'd be what I, that, that, I didn't even, I didn't even know they had a tier system like that. If you want to, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Like what? <laughs> You get a disc? What? You like, get a, what, there's what, only like 500. I get a shirt? It's like a, it's like a limited edition thing. So honestly, the, the $100 tier is the way to go if you can get in. Because that disc you and the coin. You sell the disc. Yeah, it flips and you get your money back. And you got it. See, I just think that's, that's such a weird, such a weird concept to me. Of where it's like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. The, um, the worst part for me and where uh, USDGC, if they went to do pay-per-view, you know, like last year and the year before, you were going directly through Innova. It was a clearly Innova decision, right? The thing that worries me about this year is to even buy it, you have to kind of go through the Disc Golf Network's website. 
to where what I'm hoping is that it doesn't negatively affect what the Disc Golf Network's trying to build by fans looking at it thinking the Disc Golf Network is charging me 10 bucks a month, ah. and now they're asking me for $25 more, or $20 more, because you do get a little bit of a discount. They're asking me for $20 I did, more I did to watch see people this. Say, I did see people saying that. Yeah. To where like it's, it's not, not it's not the it's disc like, golf network's decision, but it has to go through them to where it looks like it's their decision. Well, like if the disc golf network didn't want to film and do it, right? Like mm-hmm. you wouldn't. It would. It would. Someone else would be paying. You would have to. Like you're not. You're not getting this for free. No, the end of made the decision. The, yeah, whether it's going through the net, disc golf network or whatever, like I, I think that's what everyone needs to realize is like you're not going to be able to watch USDGC for free. So yeah. it doesn't it has nothing to do with who's actually uh, who you're actually going to to watch it. Um, but you know I don't I don't I don't I don't think it's a smart move, man. I no. I think for where where disc golf landscape is right now the number one goal is how do we get as many eyeballs as possible? Mm-hmm. That should be the number one goal and not like how do we suck out as much money as we possibly can from the very small. And I'll tell you, I'll say this, right? Could we have, could we have ads on this podcast right now? 1000%. We could be doing ad reads you know, for five, 10 minutes, if we really wanted to, you know, I have the connections to reach out, to get ads on here. If we want to, that isn't a smart move because this is a brand new podcast mm-hmm. and we're trying to build it. We're trying to get more listeners. We're trying to get more people to talk about it. We're trying to get, uh, this thing built up and throwing ads down people's throats right now, uh, would hurt the product in mm-hmm. my opinion. Now, down the road, when there's 100,000, 50,000 listeners to this podcast, of course, we're going we're gonna to shoot some ads out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point, we're probably going to be on our 50th episode and, and people are going to you know, already know that it's coming. It's going to be slowly rolled in. Yeah. That's kind of my thought is like right now, Disc Golf is in a world of where they should be trying to get as many eyeballs on it as possible. And putting stuff behind paywalls is causing a lot of the people that might be on the fence to tune in and watch to just be like, nah. So you're, are you even saying the Disc Golf Network in general? Like the pay-per-view per month structure? Yeah, I don't, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a great... I don't think it's a great structure. Interesting. I don't. I think, I think if they have the funds, if they have the money to be able to still do what they're doing and not make as much money in a, in the short term. It's all about your product, right? Like same thing with foundation, right? We, when, when, uh, when you guys first started doing foundation, you guys weren't killing it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like the amount of money that was rolling in was insane. Um, but you had some sort of product, some sort of business that you really believed in and you were okay with not making money right out the gate because you knew down the road it could turn into something bigger. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of where disc golf is right now is if you believe in it, if you think live disc golf has potential, then you should be okay 
with taking a little bit of a back seat in the amount of um, inflow, money inflow that you have currently uh, to try to build up to where you have 100,000 people watching instead of 12 or 13,000. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it just depends. It depends on what they're trying to do. I think you're going to get more people faster when you're not putting stuff behind paywalls. I mean, that's just how it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, and then you just, you know, have faith in your product that sponsors are going to want to come in and put money there. Because to me, if I'm a viewer, I would much rather watch something, um, for free and have a couple ads sprinkled in there than having to pay 25 bucks. Yeah. Well, I think part of the issue strictly on USCGC, not really disc golf network, that might be a future topic that we can get into, uh, the pay-per-view model for the sport as a whole. But with USCGC, I think the biggest issue here is it's just a a manufacturer owned major. Cause if this was the disc golf pro tour that owned it, then the Disc Golf Network subscribers are getting it for free. Not for free, but you're paying the well, five for, bucks a month or ten bucks a month. If you're already a subscriber, yeah. Yeah, you're not paying additional. If it's the PDGA, they're doing it with the National Tour, I would argue the same thing. We got Worlds the same way. We didn't pay extra for Worlds. Every Where other is major, this money going? That's, that's the it, other question. I personally... Because their, their, purse, their purse has been... Uh, you know, it, it, People have posted USDGC you know, first place like how much they've won over the years. And it's mm-hmm. like, it, it makes no sense. It's, it's not a slow, gradual, like yeah. as disc golf's getting more popular. So personally, where, I think, where's I think most going? of it, I think it's going towards renting the campus Winthrop. Cause I've, I've heard the number in the past. I tried Googling to see if it was public. I can't find it. So I'm just assuming it's not public, uh, but it's pretty astronomical as you can imagine to rent out a college campus for a week not the entire campus, but a, a decent chunk of the parking, the different parts it's using. Like there's two or three parking lots that are fully just disc golf, the greens that they're using around the lake and stuff like that, putting the ropes up, all of that. It, it's, they don't do it for free. I think that they're, I think that's why this number is even so high is they're trying to make sure they cover that cost. Whereas like they could have went five bucks and got way more people, but then it's a big risk of like now at five bucks, we need five times the amount of people that we do at 25 when like yeah. people are going to want to watch USDGC. I, I think that's, I think that's what's happening. I think that's where it's like having these having these venues, like picking being strategic about these venues is so important. Mm-hmm. So important. Because uh, a course like Maple Hill, for example, Maple Hill should be rolling out the red carpet for the Disc Golf Pro Tour. Yeah. Right? Like they 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 should be wanting a, a pro tour event at Maple Hill because they know the exposure it gets um, people. Because I think that's slowly starting to happen now to where you're starting to see people want to play the courses that the pros play. Mm-hmm. I don't know how big that was back in the day, 5, 10, 15 years ago. Like if some random course was like a national tour event. If like people all of a sudden were like, I need to go play that course. Um, but like a course like New London, obviously that's something near and dear to us. You know, a, a Paul Macbeth uh, design course. But a course like that, that course, if that ever gets on the on the Pro Tour, that course blows up. Mm-hmm. Like 
way more than what it is right now. Right now, it's just because we've talked about it. We've had videos there and all that. But as soon as that course is on the Pro Tour and you start hearing pros talk about how awesome of a course it is and all that, now all of a sudden, like that course blows up and people start traveling to play it um, and, and like spit, you know, spit making vacations and stuff around playing that course. I think that's going to slowly start happening more and more in disc golf. And so, one, when you have a course somewhere that doesn't even ex- exist, like the course doesn't even exist for some of the year, mm-hmm. right? I think that's Well, it, that's it big... exists, but the ropes aren't up. So it's like... It well, was, I'm talking about yeah. like D-Glow. And, oh, okay, 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 okay. And some, some other courses that, you know, are very are like temp seasonal. Courses. Yeah. Very, yeah, temp, temp courses. Um, but then also like, you know, some of these courses that we've been playing where we're playing on golf courses... And we're paying a stupid amount of money to be there, like that. That that needs to be that needs to be flipped. Like you need to like no one, no one. Uh, the NFL is not paying an insane amount of money to have the Super Bowl wherever. Like mm-hmm. that, that's insane. Like cities are placing bids to have the Super Bowl there. Yeah, because they realize how much money is going to come into their city that it would be, it's going to be a huge thing for them. Right. That is also that that's kind of what the pro tour should try to get to. Obviously it's on a much smaller scale right now, but like the idea of like foundation versus the nation, when we go to a course and we have a foundation versus the nation, obviously with COVID we haven't been able to do as many as we wanted, but the idea was like we're going to leave the course in a better spot than when we when we were there. Whether yeah. that's putting in a new new baskets, new tee pads, uh, whatever it may be, but we're going to be putting money into that course. Like that should be kind of the idea. Um, but I know it's just weird because right now most of these courses are on like parks and yeah. stuff. Well, I think where that's where not, it- you know it's not like a. It's not like a business. Yeah, it's starting. It's starting to shift, right? Because Maple Hill is a great example. Maple Hill, privately owned. That's a course that years and years people have always wanted to travel. That's like a dream bucket list course for me. I want to go play Maple Hill Memorial at Fountain Hills. Unfortunately, the sports kind of outgrown it. That was another one of those courses. But speaking from personal experience at Bedford, you brought up New London and stuff like that. Once once we had an event here, even though it is just a B tier. What happened was the Parks and Rec Department and the like, the Bedford Tourism Department could see the economic impact that this event brings. They're like, wow, there's people from X amount of states coming in. Those people mm-hmm. are all staying at X, Y, and Z hotels. We have our hotels getting booked up in the Bedford area because we're a small town to where we might be a small sport, but a small sport still makes a big impact on a small town, right? So in Bedford, they're looking oh, at it like, sure. how on earth can we get more and more? So now this year, the Battle for Bedford's at like 430 some players registered. And the Department of Tourism, uh, the like the Parks and Rec Department, they're pouring money into disc golf and into this event because they know the economic impact that's going to have because they know people are traveling just day to day from North Carolina, West Virginia, other parts of Virginia to come to see, uh, to come to see New London. And so yeah. I think, and sa- similar thing to Eureka with Ledgestone, Eureka every year is writing an article of like, look at the economic impact this is having 
on our area. And then you see more and more local sponsors, the parks and rec people are more and more like, hey, what can we do? You have all of our resources because, you know, our mountain bike racing and our 5K isn't bringing in this type of exposure and event because you're able to have a massive, a massive sporting event mm-hmm. in a small town, basically. So yeah. I think that's where disc golf, that's the next step is like finding more of these like little niche areas or privately owned courses that like that uh, Eagles Crossing, I think is a great example that just went in that I think there's like a GK Pro skin match or something at. It looks sick, but it's just a privately owned course that'll probably be on the Pro Tour in the near future because that's the goal. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely think that that's the way the sport will head. Unfortunately, I think it's going to be at the cost of one of our more iconic courses being Winthrop Gold uh, at USDGC. I just don't know where – I don't see that course having longevity in, in our sport uh, because, I mean, eventually Winthrop's going to want to do something with that land or the price is going to get too astronomical to make sense anymore to keep it there yeah and i and i also don't know how how much that tournament is because like how much of the prestige of that tournament is because of the course i mean i would argue a lot of it because it's just iconic when you see someone step up to 17 you're thinking of how many players have lost usdgc on 17 when you step up to hole seven you you, see the bamboo wall yeah but those are all things yeah yeah but i'm saying like 30 years from now you're telling me you can't if if USDGC uh, just changed right, and they're like, oh, we're uh, you know we won't even mention like Innova not running it anymore, but you know it just was at a different course. Let's just say it was at New London, right? It just all of a sudden USDGC is now at New London. Thirty years from now, you're gonna tell me like people are gonna be talking about Winthrop? No, no, like no. it's like it's a it's a it's a it's, it's a, a short term. It's again. It, it, there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference when you're playing a disc golf course and there's like, uh, you know, a playground in the background and like a pool in the background and, you know, bikers and all this stuff in the background. There's a huge difference between that and you're playing a course where it is a disc golf course. Mm-hmm. And like anyone that you're seeing in the background is there because of the disc golf tournament. There's not yeah. just like random people having picnics and stuff because you're playing in the park. I think that matters. I think that's a big deal. And so the idea of like this course is on this land that this, this college wasn't using, but like one of the holes you're throwing from like the library's door, <laughs> like Billy could be coming out of the library after like an all nighter. <laughs> And he's all of a sudden the background of a major? I mean, the, the, don't it's get the me started. It's and the but, door's locked. So that's not going to happen. Okay. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, I'm absolutely. watching and I'm like, absolutely. and I'm watching. I'm like, is I'm like, someone going to come out the door? Like, they're, yeah. they're, they're throwing from right there. So, I mean, it is what it is. But uh, I don't think the USDGC would, maybe in the short term, because so many people hate change but i I think long term them changing to a to a different venue that wants them to be there um that's set up for disc golf i think uh would be a good thing absolutely all right last topic this is the one that i think we this is what's gonna make it debate real quick though i know we have go for it i know i know you're trying to skip topics here i wasn't trying to skip a topic no, there, we have more topics than one. I only had one more written down. No, no, no. We had 
Uh, I had the commentary left. The commentary is all I have left in this book. No, we still need to talk about um, uh, what is considered part of oh, the course. Oh, part of the course. That's a great – yeah, okay. Is that the only one that you skipped or are you trying I to forgot skip that another one. one? I forgot that one. Uh, that's the only one okay. I forgot. So okay, the part right. of the course we agree on. Part of the course we can – this is I this just, is easy. I just so, got to tell us for people though because some people – Oh, absolutely. They Go love this part. They love part of the course and it's the stupidest thing. Guys, listen to me, Okay. And this happened at Ledgestone probably a couple times, but it happened with Drew. And you could see the frustration on Drew Gibson's face because he threw a good shot on the very difficult par five. They changed the numbers, so I'm having a hard time remembering what hole that was mm-hmm. at Northwood Black. But it's the, it's the very difficult par five. He threw a good tee shot, and his disc landed like 15 feet in front of the FPO tee pad. And so... He's got all this signage that they have for the FPO tee pad literally right where his disc is. And so he's not able to make a normal run-up. He has to deal with this FPO signage. This is what I'm going to say, guys. Part of the course, what that means, again, this is another terminology that they've taken from golf. And whoever's taken it. They just don't understand what it means. Part yeah. of the course means that if you show up to the course when the tournament is gone, the stuff is there. Mm-hmm. Also, spoiler alert, courses have stuff that isn't part of the course there all the time. For example, a sign, a, a T sign is not part of the course. Okay? Uh, bathrooms aren't part of the course like these are not things that are part of the course a bunker is a part of the course the rough is a part of the course the fairway the green like these are things that are part of the course all these stuff that has been brought in to like make the course either uh easier to follow with like tea signs or cart signs or whatever or stuff that's been brought in so you can use the restroom or you can have something to eat. Like these things are not part of the course. So when you're looking at disc golf, disc golf has even more of these things because when the pro tour comes in, they're bringing in a bunch of stuff that they're putting into the ground. That stuff is not part of the course. And again, when I ask people, my favorite thing to ask someone is why? Like why? Like, what is the reasoning? And if the reasoning is like, well, it's just, you know, part of the course or if they don't have a good reason for it, and I do, then let's stop doing the, the stuff with the stupid reason. My reason is it looks absolutely insane having someone throw right next to a porta potty. Looks absolutely <laughs> insane. Okay. The also, porta potty is th- interesting. What, 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 how do they get, no, 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 I, I agree with you. I'm curious, what's, is it just casual relief from a Porta John? Like, what's, yeah, what's the yeah. way around it? You yeah. just get casual relief off it. Okay. Cause yeah. like a sign you can take out of the ground and like lay it down type thing. But I'm saying, you the should be able to do that with every sign. Every sign. If there's yeah. any signs and you can pull it up out of the ground and put it there and put it right back, you should be able to do that. But we shouldn't be having a mini golf course out there where people are having to throw discs. Hole one at a uh, Portland Open. People were having to throw discs through banners, flag banners. <laughs> Same yeah. thing, hole 18 at Des Moines. 
they they moved. I think they ended up moving flag banners at one point after like the first round again, which is also really weird that you can like just do stuff like that. But like we shouldn't like you shouldn't have stuff that's like promotional stuff that you now are having to throw shot like tunnel shots through. It's just it just baffles my mind. So this whole part of the course stuff, signs, porta potties, uh, you, you know, like um, a food truck, like all these things, bleachers, all these things. Like I I don't want to have to. I don't want to be watching someone having to try to throw a shot through a bleacher. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't want it. I, it looks absolutely silly. It looks stupid. And, uh, you know, just give them casual relief if it's a situation where they can't actually move something. But if it's like that Drew Gibson situation, he should have 100% been able to lift, pick up the signs, put them down, and walk, you know, and throw in his normal shot. Yeah, they should have been considered like dead and unattached. Like the rule, rule in PJ, where it's like if it's encroaching your lie and it's dead and unattached, meaning it's not part of the course, you can move it. Um, I always define part of the course as something that the course, in t- the course designer intentionally put there or left behind intentionally to yeah, you line think, the you fairway. Think course, you think course designers are intentionally putting T signs into the ground? No, that's what I'm saying. Like a, a rock that's, surrounding that's, the green. The course uh, designer is not whatever, doing any of that. Like that. A rock yeah. surrounding the green. Yeah. But like the, sure. the when a tournament but, rolls in, if they bring pe- something, that's not a part of the course. But people, people would consider a T sign in golf as part of the course like disc golfers would be like oh that's part of the course right well a t sign is a little bit weirder because like what are you going to do with the t sign i guess casual relief off it but sure but i'm saying the course designer is not saying i want my t signs this close to the no correct course designer is going in setting up the course and then they're piecing out and then the club like the people that own the club and own the course those are the people that are like how big of a t sign do we want do we want it they're making those decisions and they're putting those in the ground. Um, my whole thing is, is like, if it looks ridiculous, it probably is ridiculous and it needs to be changed. And so, it absolutely looks ridiculous when people, when, when Eagle is straddling some sort of like uh, barrier, some car barrier and throwing a forehand at Deaglo. It looks ridiculous. Yeah. I, I mean, I fully agree. Now I, obviously a lot of your ideas and your past history comes from the golf side, right? So explain to me this scenario where I've seen golfers like having to hit shots from on top of a patio or that's because uh, they've, cho- they've chosen that that's like a that. better shot. Yeah. So you're they've, saying they've so if a chosen. player's, so what's their option? What was their other option? You basically, I'm pretty sure you basically keep going back on the line of play, uh, uh, until it's not in your way, essentially. So it's, it's the same as or, casual relief. Or, or you take it no closer to the hole. Kind of, yeah, exactly. Okay. But there's so some situations a- where, like, you know, the the famous one is Phil Mickelson hitting it off the uh, the second deck at uh, this tournament, and actually had, hitting a mm-hmm. nasty shot. Like, I'm pretty sure in that scenario, he went up to his ball and was like, "I can pull the shot off." It's the same thing as like hitting a cart path. You get relief off of the cart path, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in golf. So if your ball lands on the cart path or even if your ball is close enough to the cart path to where you feel like you can actually strike the cart path during your swing, you get relief off of it. But there are situations where you see guys hit their shots 
off the cart path because they feel like um, whether the angle or they just feel like the grass around the cart path is so bad that they, they'll just take a clean lie off the cart path versus putting themselves in a position to where it could actually be a lot more difficult. So, so it'd be similar I mean, in disc golf if they wanted to take the lie from the bleacher versus from the, the casual potty. relief. Yeah. Sure. If they wanted to, they could, but they have the option to take the casual relief. Mm-hmm. In Drew's case, they, he has the option to lift the sign, but if he just like, hey, I like this sign being between my legs, he could leave it there. Yeah. If, he, oh, if yeah. for some weird always... reason he would like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, I think it's one of those situations where uh, if someone decides that, it probably is not going to look nearly as weird. I'm talking about like I, I'm not, I'm waiting for the day that someone throws uh, their, you know, their shot into a trash can, and the person's having to stick their foot into a trash can to throw their shot out. Like <laughs> that's going to be insane. Yeah. So um, in that scenario, you know, that person, I don't think if he if they had the option, there's no way they're saying yes. Let me stick my foot into a dirty trash can. To throw my next shot, but yeah, okay. I'm I'm kind of surprised I, that's even a conversation that is still going on. Like that seems so cut and dry to me. That it it needs to be a rule. At least let's just do with the signs because if you're putting signs all over the course, because if you look at golf too, like golf doesn't put signs and banners on the course where it could get in a player's way. Like you, the person has to throw such a bad shot to ever get into that situation for the most part. Uh, but there's times where like there's banners and flags five feet off of like a, a good fairway shot. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I let, let's 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 do away with the craziness. But okay, let's move on to the last topic. Yeah. So the last topic, what I thought we were about to get into, uh, this is the one that I think we, we disagree on from what from what I've understood. I want to hear oh, your no, point. We thousand percent disagree on this. Well, I want to hear your point fully explained. Tr- Trevor was just telling me that you were spewing absolute trash around foundation. And I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. So your, your point it's is simple, the commentary. Go for it, it. It's a simple, it's a simple, it's a simple thing that literally I think 99% of sports fans would agree with me. Mm-hmm. Bias commentary is trash. Yes. People don't want bias commentary. Agreed. The only time bias commentary is okay is... If it's being done and paid for and through the platforms of the team. Like a home and team, so, radio, et cetera. So, yeah, you, baseball people, you know, have been spitting that idea out all the time. And it's like, yes, I understand that there are baseball teams that have their own commentary team, basically. So, if you want to listen, uh, that's fine. Uh, same thing with the Olympics, for example. Like, you're going to tell me. If you watch the Olympics through uh, the the USA commentators versus like the Russian comment, well, not Russia is a bad example, but let's say like uh, Chinese. Let's say you're fluent in Chinese. You're gonna tell me that the commentary is gonna sound the same watching the same event? No way! Like yeah. the USA is clearly biased towards the USA stuff, but. If you're watching an NBA basketball game through the broadcast through the national broadcast channel, ideally those guys should not be biased. Those you yeah. shouldn't be hearing a bias for a certain player 
or a certain team or anything like that. So I think where we disagree, because that point I fully agree with. I think where we disagree is in disc golf commentary specifically, what is a bias? So like, I think I would a hundred percent agree. Like you got to cut it out. Rooting, if like Rooting for players. Ex- yeah, I agree with that. So like if Paul's about to make a putt and you're cheering, you're cheering for it to go in and you're saying like, Oh, get in, get in. That's bias. That's a no go. Yes. Like that makes like, that's it's also no-go. terrible but, commentary. Well, it's yeah, that, that didn't really describe anything. But <laughs> on the flip side, I think that a call such as Ricky throws a 200-foot approach shot, it hits the cage, and it's rolling towards the OB, and the commentator is saying, sit down, sit down. Yeah, that's terrible. To me, that is where I don't feel like that's bias. Because I feel He's like bias— He's rooting for the disc! He's rooting for the disc! To, but to I do... feel like bias is Tell... directly rooting against someone, right? So, like, I'm rooting for Paul to make that putt, what? which is directly against Ricky or whoever he's going against. No! No! So, in, in, in golf, right? Let's, let's go to golf. In golf, if someone hits a drive or hits an approach shot, what they'd be saying is something along the lines of, like, oh, it's rolling towards the pin. It's rolling towards the pin. It has a chance. Oh! It's rolling it's away. Rolling, it's rolling towards But I'm, I'm using – I'm trying to be super vague. I'm we trying to be might, super vague. We might, we might have to do a video with you commentating. <laughs> like, throw up a broadcast and mute it and then have you commentating. But you see I've what I'm never saying? Heard, never heard anyone describe golf like that. That's it's funny. rolling to the pit. It's rolling to the pit. Oh, it's rolling away. It's rolling away. What I'm trying to say is like that was a vague, clearly no bias, yes. right? In the words. Sure. But the yes. expression, you could argue, is bias. Because I'm no. getting excited that the result's about to happen that's good for no. the player. And then no. I'm getting upset that, the, no. it's bad, that it's bad. How is no. that not you biased? Want, you want people to get excited. And I think a lot of people, when I was talking about this with the, the commentary and stuff, people were like sending me like sending me clips of people hitting a home run. And the announcer's like, it's back, it's back, it's back, it's gone! Like, that's good. Like, but is that I'm, not a form of bias? No. Because well, if, I'm, not rooting for the, a, I'm not rooting if, for the home run. I'm explaining what it's happening. And it's obvious. Okay, there's a big di- – let me, let me give you two examples, okay? That one and it's back, it's back, and it's out of here. Mm-hmm. What, what am I – if I'm watching this as a game, whether I'm a fan for the team or a fan against the team, which one is bringing more emotion out of me? If I'm a – okay, like if I'm a fan of the team – and the person goes, it's back, it's back, it's out of here. Yeah. I'm, I'm going nuts, yeah. right? If I'm a, not a fan of the team and I'm watching that and he goes, it's back, it's back, it's gone. I'm going, like I'm freaking out, right? Like I'm both, both, in, in both situations, it's giving a really good, re- it's going to amplify me watching the game. Yeah, okay? so... But what I'm saying is, if I'm watching a Duke-UNC game, the game I'm most passionate about, right, and UNC hits a game winner, I'm going, yeah. oh my gosh, he hit the shot. And the Whereas announcer's going nuts. Fan, if I'm a Duke the fan going and Duke nuts. hit the game winner, I'm going, oh my gosh, he hit the shot. I'm yeah. saying, but my words aren't biased, but I'm, I'm showing no, bias. Wait, you, but you're talking about your fan. You're talking about being a fan. The, the, yeah. The, uh, the announcer should... Whether it's Duke making the game-winning shot or UNC making game-winning shot, the announcer should not change. And that's the thing: exactly. is like good announcers, they're like a good announcer is going to go nuts on a game-winning shot. It's just, yeah. it's it's basketball. 
a big game-winning shot, you're going to go... And one of the main reasons why you have to go nuts and you have to be loud is because everyone around you is screaming. So if you're just like, oh, wow. So in disc shot. golf, though... Like, you're, not, you're not even going to be able to hear the guy. In disc golf, have you actually noticed, like, Ian Anderson will use him because he's the one who probably does this the most, I would say. Have you actually noticed him rooting for Ricky's disc to sit down but then not rooting for Kevin's disc to sit down? Because that would be a bias. But if he roots for him no. both to sit down, no. and what he's saying no. is sit down, sit down. No. Is that still no. a bias? Yes, because it's the same exact thing as if you're watching the Duke-UNC game, and mm-hmm. every single time, okay, every single time a shot went up, whether it was Duke or UNC, if the announcer was like, go in, baby, go in. Oh, yeah. If, if he did that for every single shot for both teams, that is terrible commentary. I agree. And I think, I think in disc golf, saying go in is an awful, awful commentary. But I think there's a difference between saying go in and like hoping for a bad break to stop once a no. bad break's happened. That's what no, I hear when, most of the time is something... like, oh, get off the tree or, oh, sit down, which is what like do you hear? a bad break's what, happening. What do you hear in basketball when someone misses a shot? Oh man, it, it just seemed that's like that's unfortunate. It, you hear someone say that's unfortunate. I feel like that. I mean, I I don't know a hundred percent, but that, I don't think they ever say like that you. word. But I'm saying, have you ever heard someone go up, shoot a shot, and then be like, "Oh man, it looks like uh, looks like they just you know they might be cramping or like oh like he normally makes that nine out of ten times. I can't believe he missed that or no, uh, that does not happen. Oh, oh no, they. They're not making excuses for the players, right? Mm-hmm. They never make excuses, which you hear all the time in disc golf. People make that's, excuses. That's true. Yep. Or, or like they already like making these insane like, oh, this guy's gonna make the, this guy makes this putt ninety nine out of hundred times. Like they make insane numbers where it's like you you literally have statistics if you Just really want to look if you really want to look at what this person's capable of. Um, but to me, it just seems like again, like I don't want to watch commentary where the person's rooting for good things to happen. Like, uh, good commentary? Tell me what's going on. And, like, yeah. bring more emotion to the game. Like, well, that's sometimes fair. bad stuff happening makes stuff more interesting to watch. Like, I-, I can send you a clip of Phil Mickelson literally going insane at the U.S. Open because the greens were gone. The greens were gone. No one could putt. And his ball kept rolling back, like back and forth. And like at one point, he literally he puts, and he can see the ball is going to roll off the green, right? Mm-hmm. Like he had a five foot putt, and now his ball is about to be a hundred feet away from the green. And he starts jogging over to his ball while the ball is moving, and puts it back before the ball even stops, which is like an absolute no no in golf. Yeah, and. The commentators, like, they weren't rooting for the ball to stop. They were explaining and being like, oh, my gosh, that, that, ball, that ball could roll to the bottom of the green. That, might, that ball might roll off the green. It's picking up steam. It's, oh, it's not slowing down. It's, that is what we should be saying. Not, mm-hmm. oh, stay in bounds. Stay in bounds. Oh, stay. Oh, yeah. oh man. That's. That's so unfortunate. Like what? You're not. You're not a fan. You're a commentator. Yeah. Like there's a difference between a commentator and a fan. And it's the same reason why if I put you in the booth 
to commentate something, you probably would be trash compared to <laughs> someone that actually commentates stuff. Because you're just going to come from it from a, a fan perspective. And yeah, which I think reason. that's like, probably what's going on. Like, why would you? Why would you want to watch a uh, the UNC Duke basketball game? Would you want to watch that next to a random person that you have no connection with? That's a huge UNC fan. No. In your house. In your house. I mean, unless it's a year that I know Duke's going to slap him around. That's the only way. No, 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 no. Nine times no. out of ten, no. No. Because, like, they're gonna, they're, the way they're going to be talking about the game and getting excited about the game and stuff like that is going to annoy the crap out of you. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's the thought process of, like, having someone like that versus having an unbiased, like... Imagine watching the game next to like uh, uh, Dick Vitale. You probably would do that. You probably would say, yes, if I could have Dick Vitale watch the game with me in my house, I 100% would do that because it would be electric. It would be insane. He would be going nuts. You'd be going nuts. It, it didn't, and at that point, it didn't matter what Duke or UNC was doing. It would, be, it would increase your enjoyment in the game. But having someone... That specifically is just going to be rooting for uh, good things to always happen for UNC. Like, no, you want to be at home rooting against that. So, like, yeah. that's the that's the whole notion. Is like, if I'm watching something, I want unbiased. Unbiased is huge, but I also don't want them rooting because, like, that was someone's excuse. Is like, well, they root for everyone. They root. They they want good disc golf shots. And, and well, I think that's it. where the bias co- issue comes in. Is uh, well, that's I think that's, where the, that's, I think that's the hang up. I think that's the that's, hang up on the argument, right? Is like yes, because it's, it's not, not really not a bias asking, if they're rooting for everyone. Yeah, I'm not just asking for unbiased commentary. I'm asking for You're unbiased for commentary no and good commentary. Like I'm, I'm that roots those for are no one. The two separate things. And I got you. And yes, if you root for everyone. Sure, that's unbiased because you're literally rooting for everyone. You're not, you're not just rooting for Innova players or Discraft players or for Ricky and Eagle and not for this person. So, yes. That, so, that, that was my unbiased, whole argument. But it's bad commentary. Like, it's unbiased, bad commentary because yeah. you're not adding anything. I can find 10,000 people to – and this is, this is actually, this is actually a, a good point. Um, that people have brought, or sorry, this is actually using someone that thinks they're making a good point and me spinning it around on him and showing him how dumb of a point there is, is they're like, that's what disc, that's what makes disc golf unique is because players and stuff like that root for shots. And it's like, first off, no golf. You go to a golf thing. You hear people all the time say nice shot, great drive. You hear that all the time. It's not unique in disc golf. And the second thing is I don't want a fan commentating. Like mm-hmm. if I, I can find 10,000 fans to commentate uh, disc golf if I really wanted to hear that. I want someone that's going to be adding something, bringing something to the table. So this notion of like, oh, it makes disc golf unique because the commentators in disc golf root for everyone. And that's what also players do. And it's like, yeah, but I'm not – I the people I play casual disc golf with, I would in no world think, bro, you need to get in the booth because yeah. how you just described 
or how you just rooted for my shot to miss that tree. My gosh, that was fantastic. <laughs> Get yourself in the booth. Like, no, like that's not, you're not, you know, saying miss it, saying go in, saying stop, saying don't roll. Like that's, I'm watching. I see what's going on. I don't yeah. need you to tell me to stop rolling when a disc is rolling. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how people like that. I think I think it was like, more well, I think a lot of people dislike the commentary. That's been a, a thing on and on. I think it was more the point that I read and what I was presented as was you were saying that the disc golf commentary was unbiased. Which I think the only time that it's ever unbiased is when they're rooting for bias. something You're saying bias. Bias, my bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the only time it's ever yeah. biased is when they are rooting for like for instance James Conrad's shot if they say, Oh, go in, go in because you're in that moment, directly rooting against another player. Everyone else. Whereas, like, yeah. yeah, when you're rooting kind of for, like, a bad break to stop, and you do that for everyone's bad break, then that's not really bias. But you're saying, your argument is that's a whole separate thing. That's just bad commentary because, like, why the heck are you telling me to stop versus telling me the possible repercussions of what's about to happen on this whole, this course, yada, yeah. yada, stuff that I might not know as a viewer. Yeah. Instead of, instead of saying, oh, this – that stop that needs to stop that needs to stop instead of saying that they should be saying something along the lines of like oh there's water 20 feet away if that keeps going he might yeah. lose more providing strokes. more context to the situation some yeah something or don't say anything at all that's the Just other the thing moment. is like in golf sometimes not saying anything same thing in football basketball like knowing when to just not say anything and let the build let the moment build sometimes is way better and you know i think i think sometimes what people get caught up in is the commentary from like jomez central coast all this where it's more of a it's more of a commentary right like i would never if i uh, i'm sure you watch some commentary youtube channels right mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you're watching them to see what that person specifically is going to say about, about the video. Mm-hmm. If that person's not talking during the event, during the video, that person's probably doesn't have a successful commentary channel, right? Yeah. A commentary channel is completely different than an announcer. And it's same, same thing as like a fight companion. Like when Joe Rogan does his fight companion, if you watch Joe Rogan's fight companion, he is completely different during his fight companion than he is when he is at a fight and he's one of the announcers. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a perfect example right there is like, those are two different things. And right now I think everything is being a fight companion. Everything is being like, you're just constantly talking throughout the entire uh, viewing. And it's more of like a friend, you're watching it with a friend than when you're you're actually watching it with some sort of professional announcer. So that's my point. I'm sure there's going to be some people that disagree, but I'll tell you, you're in the minority of sports. Okay. I yeah, I fully understand. You're, you're your just point in now. the minority of sports. Yeah, I get what you're. I get what you're saying now. I fully understand that because uh, and I think one thing to to the kind of wrap this all up is right now. I think most of disc golf commentary is coming from even the play-by-play side is coming from people who are just in, they've always been in disc golf. Like they're, they're always in disc golf. Whereas I think it'd be easier to take someone who is a sports journalist or 
studied commentary and is good at being the announcer, the play-by-play guy, and teaching them enough about disc golf to be able to hold that position than it is to take someone who knows disc golf inside and out but has never done play-by-play and try to teach them play-by-play. They, I think yeah, it's be, it'd need, be easier to take someone who already knows that and teach them the basic ropes of the sport of disc golf yeah. than vice versa, which I think that's what's kind of going on right now is we're taking a bunch of people that know disc well, you golf, have, you have really know what they're talking people. about, and trying to teach them it. Yeah, You, you have, just all, have all yeah. color people. You have all like the experts. That's, like, that's mm-hmm. what you have right now. You, have, you don't have play-by-play. You know, play. You, well, you have play-by-play, play, but they're not sitting four, in that role. You have four Tony Romos doing commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I think that's also missing that could be super useful. And I think the only reason why it isn't being used is because of the technology issues or finance issues is like, you need to have people on the ground. Like you should have someone following the lead card and you should have someone following the chase card and they should almost be going to that person like on a regular basis. Where right now you have like Nate Perkins, Christine Jennings. There's been a couple people that have like filled that role, but you they'll go to them like once every like 45 minutes, and it's mm-hmm. like a quick, it's like a conversation of like, "Hey Hunter, what's going on down there?" And then you talk for a minute, and then say tell you about the vibe back, of the car. Back, yeah, back back to you guys, and that's it. Versus it needs to be a conversation because. If I'm Nate Doss and I'm watching a, a tournament that I've never played before and I'm watching it on a small little screen, it is very difficult for me to, to be able to know exactly what's going on. So like, but if I'm Nate Doss, I've been put in situations before so I can be able to ask good questions and be like, hey, Hunter, like, is there any reason why you don't think this person's going to be running this putt? Like is that water going to come into play or what? And like, you can be like, no, 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 that water it's, it's, it'd be impossible for them to be able to get to it. And then I'd be like, all right, cool. Like, like there needs to be like going back and forth, some sort Mm -hmm. of communication versus just like sending it to you for you to give a recap or whatever. And then we're done. Like golf, like very rarely do you ever hear like the people in the booth, explain the lie uh, in golf, right? Like they'll mm-hmm. always say like, hey, what do you think the lie lo- is, looks like? Do you think he's going to be able to get a club on it? And he'd be like, I don't know, man. I walked around. It was really hard to see that golf ball. That golf ball is deep down there. there it looks like they're just going to have to chunk this one out. And then it goes to the booth and then the booth can take that information and be like, say whatever they want with it. But It provides right more context now, for them to add their ideas to. Right now, you're seeing Nate Doss, Jamie Thomas, Terry, whoever in the booth. They're giving their opinions on a lot of things that when you watch it, the reason why so many times they're just dead wrong is because they're not able to actually get all the information because they're not on the ground and they can't see that there's a tree there or a limb there or the wind's doing this or whatever. They're not able to actually be able to take all that information. So... That's one thing that I think they're missing, but I'm with you. I think a good hire for the Disc Golf Network is simply someone that has some sort of background in announcing. Give me a D3 baseball announcer and Mm -hmm. uh, just see how much better the flow of the announcing is uh, when you have someone like that. 
Yeah, I definitely think that's something that's going to be an interesting development as live disc golf kind of develops because it's something that I think they've heard enough complaints about over the years because we see them constantly switching it up that they have to know there's at least some type of problem and they're trying to figure it out. But right now they're trying to figure it out within the bubble of disc golf when it's like we got all these resources outside of disc golf. Let's start trying some of them and and see what happens there. So definitely, definitely interesting conversation. I mean, they have leverage too. I mean, like not only just the the salary of whatever that position would provide, but like if I'm an announcer, like, and you're telling me I'm going to be put as the lead guy in a sport that's growing, like that's a position that is people want. Yeah, you could be the voice of disc golf possibly. That that's an incredible position, especially if I'm just some D three announcer for some baseball team or a double A base or a, you know division two football college football program. You know, like they have a lot of leverage to be able to go out and find someone that is that is good, and um, I think that would. I mean, commentary is huge in every sport. It's something mm-hmm. that obviously is talked about all the time. Um, but yeah, I think people listening, if they're not agreeing with, if they're telling me, if, if you're telling me that you love listening to miss it, miss it, don't hit that, don't stop rolling, stop rolling, get down, go in the basket, go in the basket. If you're telling me you like that, listening to that, we in the conversation there. There's nothing. I can't. I have nothing for you. We're never gonna agree. <laughs> We're never gonna agree that that's good commentary. Where's not? Well, so there you have it. So if you're listening and uh, you're watching us here on YouTube, leave a comment down below what you thought about some of the topics today. Uh, whether you agree with us, disagree with us, or on you know on this specific topic, uh, what do you think of the commentary? Ways it can improve things that maybe we completely overlooked when talking about the bias, unbiased, good, bad commentary. Also, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that allows you to leave a review, we'd really appreciate that. If you're if you feel we deserve a five star review, go ahead and do that. If you feel we deserve a less than five star review, we read all of them, we take them to heart, and we constantly are improving. One thing that we're hoping to improve here soon is the cameras and um, that side of it so that if you listen if you're watching this visually you get a pleasurable experience as well i think that's a yeah, we need pretty easy pod- fix that we'll take care of we need our own po- podcast spot we'll get it we'll, we'll find one you're, you're we'll moving up here sick. once you're up here that's gonna It'll make life sick. a lot easier yeah yeah, it'll be nice. yeah for sure but other than that we will talk to everyone uh next week peace, peace.